0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey. (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello. She was born in 1888, the same year as T.S. Eliot and Fernando Pessoa, six years after James Joyce and Virginia Woolf, who later became her friend and rival, and about a decade or so before, fellow short story writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and William Faulkner. Unlike any of those others, she was born in New Zealand, although she left that country for good at the age of 19. She wanted to be a writer, a great one, and in fact, she did just that, overcoming a chaotic life and a tragically early death to become famous in her day and to help change the course of literary history. Her writing, Virginia Woolf said in her diary, was, quote, the only writing I have ever been jealous of. Probably we had something in common which I shall never find in anybody else. End quote. Her name was Catherine Mansfield, and we will have her story along with a reading of one of her masterpieces today on the history of literature. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Here to be your guide for the day, Catherine Mansfield, a New Zealander. This is a treat. What a great writer she was. And what a fascinating life. Turmoil, Sturm und Drong. Let's talk first about the large rock that spins around every day. You probably call it home. We can call it Earth. It's a giant thing. So big it seems flat to most of us. Little ants. But we know it's round and we know it's about 24,000 miles in circumference, more or less. Let's begin in the morning. A new day is dawning. We are in New Zealand and our dear listener, M, is tuning into the podcast. She writes Good afternoon, Jack. I am a teenage listener of your podcast from out in wee New Zealand and just wanted to contact you to say how much I enjoy your podcast. I get a daily dose of Cervantes or Wordsworth on the bus ride on the way to school. And I know that listening to you talk about literature has sparked a passion in me too, and deepened my appreciation for English. Also, the podcast has been a very good revising material for English exam essays. As a teenager, I think it is very important for young people like myself to have accessible means to understanding and at times, complex topic like literature. You have provided that. So thank you. I hope that in the near future, I get to hear an episode on a New Zealand author. Mansfield would be a good start. Kindest regards, M. What a wonderful email from M. I'm using her initial instead of her name. What a delight. I'm so glad to hear that she's been listening and that she enjoys the podcast and that she loves literature. It's very gratifying. The day is long for her, it stretches out before her, and I love what I hear about New Zealand and from New Zealand, and I hope the future is bright. Thank you, Em, and good luck to you. Em was very thoughtful to wish me a good afternoon, because it is indeed afternoon where I am. When it's morning for her, it's afternoon for me. That's how this planet works, as it spins and spins and turns its different faces toward the sun. I'm here in the early afternoon. The morning is behind me. The afternoon and evening stretch ahead. Life is good here. I've got literature too. Very excited to be talking about Catherine Mansfield today. She's an old favorite of mine. Let's keep traveling. Onward to the east where the sun is setting. Another listener is sending us an email as well. This is from our friend, listener Blanche, who writes from Israel. Dear friend Jack... She says, a month ago, you sent me a very friendly and encouraging message. I am an American living in Jerusalem, Israel, as you know, and thank goodness for the ceasefire with Hamas. My family and friends here are all well. I am enjoying today your program about William Wordsworth and his poetry. I heard of your sponsor of the book, A World on the Wing, so I am sending you pictures of the birds that are living in my garden. I will be 95 years old on July 1st, and I hope to continue listening to your clear voice and knowledgeable program. Well, a mm, little choked up. Thank you, Blanche. It is wonderful to hear from you, and happy birthday. It's evening where you are in this whirlwind trip around the planet that I'm taking in my mind, where you and M and I are all connected, all listening at once, all of us enjoying life at a different time of day. Those birds of yours are wonderful. They like to fly as well, soaring overhead and looking down at us and keeping us humans in perspective. Many thanks to you for your email, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. You have made my day a special one, full of big smiles at the pictures of your birds in your garden. So thank you for that. Let's move on to Catherine Mansfield. She was successful artistically, very successful and well-regarded. She was an excellent writer, and she moved things forward around the same time that James Joyce and D.H. Lawrence and others were moving the short story forward. This is the era of writers in English who saw what fiction and short fiction in particular could do. Joyce was developing his theory of epiphanies, which he put into practice in the Dubliners, and... In the dead, in particular, all of these writers in English suddenly had Chekhov's stories in translation as a model. We will hear one of Mansfield's stories or part of it later in this episode. And you will hear for yourself how it explores humanity in a brief span of words. It has a kind of pregnant ambiguity where we readers take up the mystery along with the characters. There's a singular moment presented to us, and we feel its power. And through that power, we grope our way toward the story's meaning. It's not spelled out for us like a a teacher writing out notes on a chalkboard for us to study for the test. It's more like a feeling for us to unpack, to unravel, to dig into, to let sit, to ponder, just to appreciate. We'll try our best to explain it, but it's not so much an explanation as an appreciation, as a a resonance. We'll get there, not to leave you in suspense. The story is called The Garden Party, and it's very fine indeed. But first, let's hear about this chaotic life of hers. She was born into a prosperous family. Her father was a very successful banker, becoming, later in life, the chairman of the Bank of New Zealand, and receiving a knighthood. The family had money. When Catherine was growing up, her mother had been well-connected, too, with a Premier of New Zealand related to her by her brother's marriage, she drew upon this family life, Catherine did, as we will see, though at the same time she chafed against it. In particular, she felt alienated from the high society, the white New Zealand high society class. As she grew into her teens, the repression of the Maori people in particular struck her as abominable, untenable. She explored this tension between rich and poor, colonizer and colonized in many of her short stories. When she was 10 or so, she started publishing these stories in school magazines. And when she was only 12, her story, His Little Friend, was published in an actual magazine, New Zealand Graphic and Ladies' Journal. It's a wonderful accomplishment for a 12-year-old. Though she still had growing to do as a writer, she would eventually become deeply influenced by Oscar Wilde and Chekhov and Virginia Woolf and James Joyce who were her kindred spirits in terms of advancing fiction both in themes and style Mansfield became one of the great modernists those writers who came of age during and just after World War 1 and who sought to make sense of a disordered fragmentary world in literature often by using innovative techniques that themselves exploded the world's idea of straightforward prose and poetry. We can see this in the visual arts as well. Mansfield was influenced by the paintings of Vincent van Gogh. No, those paintings don't look like photographs, but in a way, they are truer than a photograph. They're more true to a human vision. They're closer to how life is experienced, how it's filtered through a consciousness, how it's created by an individual willing to be true to oneself and willing to trust one's feelings and visions and expressing those instead of a faithful depiction of reality that might be true without containing the truth. The modernists inherited omniscience and rejected it for the most part. Instead, they built identities from the ground up, through sensations, through fragments, through shifting perceptions and memories and thoughts. And yet, the goal of this isn't to avoid truths, but to get at something closer to the truth, capital T. It's to avoid truths arriving in some prepackaged, handed down form. Who is an all knowing narrator or author? Who can be omniscient? The very idea is suspicious. Isn't life and a mind more slippery than that? How can any one person be the person who knows everything? That one person only has experienced one life, after all. And life isn't neat. It's not well regulated. It's not in order. It's not full of causes and effects that can be easily traced. Sometimes it's a jumble. Sometimes it's chaos. Sometimes two things can be true at once. Sometimes neither. Sometimes there's no truth at all. I'm getting carried away. Sometimes it's all we can do to hang on. We can try to do it through art if we can. And it helps if we have a master like Chekhov to help show us the way. But that's not to say Chekhov is giving us answers. Sometimes he's giving us questions. When Mansfield was 15, she went to London where she enrolled in school at Queen's College and wrote stories for the school magazine there, one of her fellow students was named Ida Baker, and the two became lifelong friends. Mansfield traveled to the continent and returned to New Zealand briefly, where she kept writing stories and published a few more, some in Australian journals, but then she left New Zealand for good when she was 19 years old. Back in England, determined to be a writer, receiving an annual allowance of 100 pounds from her father, which, as far as I can tell, is about 16,000 U.S. dollars in today's money. Not nothing, but not much. She fell in with a bohemian crowd in her impoverished state for a period of about a year or so. She barely wrote, or barely published, anyway. I think only one short story in 15 months, something like that. She had had at least two same-sex relationships at this point, one with a wealthy Maori woman whom she met at school in London, and another with a woman named Edith. She wrote about these affairs in her journals and about the Maori woman. She said, I want her. I want her as I have had her terribly. This is unclean, I know, but true. You can see how Catherine was wrestling with this. She also had relationships with men. She went after a man named Arthur, and when that didn't work out, she had an affair with Arthur's brother, a musician named Garnet Trowell. After she became pregnant with Garnet's baby, she quickly married a singing teacher named George Bowden, who was 11 years older than her, only to leave him immediately after the wedding, before the two even spent a night together. She was living with her old friend Ida, At that point, when her mother decided that things needed to be straightened out, Catherine was 21, her mother made some plans, made some arrangements. She sent Catherine to a spa in in, uh, Bavaria, a Bavarian spa, where Catherine, unfortunately, had a miscarriage. The mother arrived, blamed all the problems on Catherine's lesbianism, disinherited her, and left abandoned, Catherine turned to her journals for solace and to the works of Anton Chekhov, and she began writing her own fiction again. Her work from this period is so close to Chekhov that she's been accused of plagiarizing one of his stories. She started writing articles for a socialist magazine at this point. She had another affair with a woman named Beatrice, and she wrote a bunch of short stories about Germans whom she Encountered when she was in Bavaria and before and after in this Bavarian spa. She published that in a short story collection. In 1910, she submitted a story to an avant garde magazine called Rhythm, which was edited by John Middleton Murray, one of those figures who seems to pop up everywhere and seem to know everyone and was passionately devoted to literature, but was also hated by a lot of people in the literary community. Even his ostensible friends had a tendency to satirize him in their works. Anyway, Murray asked Mansfield to submit something darker, and she did, and the two of them started having an affair. They were on again, off again for the next seven years, and they were finally married in 1918. It was her second and last marriage. For him, it was the first of four. John Middleton Murray's magazine was in debt and Mansfield used her father's allowance to help save it, but that didn't work ultimately. Instead, the project went under, they started up a new magazine and this, we're talking about small, <laughs> kind of small potatoes here, people. It's the kind of era where, where Murray published, at one point he published Mansfield's collection of short stories in an edition of 100 copies and eventually those sold enough that they brought out another edition of another 100 copies. It's the world of Ezra Pound and D.H. Lawrence and Ford Maddox Ford and Leonard and Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot. They were publishing in small numbers for a small group just for the people who got it, other writers, some fans, not for big numbers, and yet these are the names that have come down through history. These are the people who were on to something Mansfield was one of them. She had yet another affair with a French writer, and she had a big disruption in her life when her younger brother, Leslie, was tragically killed while training in preparation for service in World War I. He was explaining to some soldiers how to throw a grenade, and the grenade went off and killed him. Two years later, Catherine was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Not quite 30. She now began a period of deep nostalgia for New Zealand. She missed her brother. She missed her home. She resisted the idea of going to a sanatorium to help her recover from tuberculosis or fight off the worst of its effects. And she couldn't return to New Zealand because of the disease and she fell into a depression. She and Murray were together and apart. It seems like The two of them couldn't stand being in one another's company and also couldn't stay away from each other. She and Murray and and Ida, her old friend Ida, all went to Switzerland to try to recover. She only had a few years left to live. Catherine did. But it was here in Switzerland that she wrote some of her best work, including the story we're going to hear today, The Garden Party. She died after running up a flight of stairs. Her lungs hemorrhaged, and finally gave out. She was 34 years old. So what do we have? What do we have left? Her fiction, of course, her reputation has only grown since her death. She was an important writer in that Bloomsbury modernist tradition and in the feminist tradition. In New Zealand, she was hugely influential. There's something like 10 schools named after her. I want to make my own This is her quote, I want to make my own country leap in the eyes of the old world, end quote. And that is what she did. Let's hear some of that leaping now, leaping in the particular way of a modernist short story writer. We will take a break, then pick up in the middle of that story, read it to the end, then we'll discuss what it means and why it's effective. Here's what you need to know from the first part of this 1922 story, the part that we're not going to read. This is a well-to-do family in New Zealand. They're planning a garden party. It's a beautiful day. The roses have come out, and the family is comfortable. They have cream puffs being delivered and a cook who's prepared to make everything else. Men arrive to put up a marquee. This is going to be grand. And then the daughter, Laura, learns of an impoverished neighbor who has died, and her instinct is that the Garden Party will be cancelled. The family disagrees. The second half of the Garden Party. After this. (laughs) ¶¶ So soon after breakfast, the very idea made one shudder. All the same, two minutes later, Josie and Laura were licking their fingers with that absorbed inward look that only comes from whipped cream. Let's go into the garden, out by the back way, suggested Laura. I want to see how the men are getting on with the marquee. They're such awfully nice men. But the back door was blocked by Cook, Sadie, Godbur's man, and Hans. Something had happened. Tuk-tuk-tuk, clucked Cook like an agitated hen. Sadie had her hand clapped to her cheek as though she had toothache. Hans's face was screwed up in the effort to understand. Only Godber's man seemed to be enjoying himself. It was his story. What's the matter? What's happened? There's been a horrible accident, said Cook. A man killed. A man killed? Where? How? When? But Godbur's man wasn't going to have his story snatched from under his very nose. Know those little cottages just below here, miss? Know them? Of course she knew them. Well, there's a young chap living there, name of Scott, a carter. His horse shied at a traction engine corner of Hawk Street this morning, and he was thrown out on the back of his head. Killed. Dead. Laura stared at Godbur's man. Dead when they picked him up, said Godbur's man with relish. They were taking the body home as I come up here. And he said to the cook, he's left a wife and five little ones. Josie, come here. Laura caught hold of her sister's sleeve and dragged her through the kitchen to the other side of the green baize door. There she paused and leaned against it. Josie she said, horrified. However, are we going to stop everything? Stop everything, Laura, cried Josie in astonishment. What do you mean? Stop the garden party, of course. Why did Josie pretend? But Josie was still more amazed. Stop the garden party, my dear Laura. Don't be so absurd. Of course we can't do anything of the kind. Nobody expects us to. Don't be so extravagant. We can't possibly have a garden party with a man dead just outside the front gate. That really was extravagant, for the little cottages were in a lane to themselves at the very bottom of a steep rise that led up to the house. A broad road ran between. True, they were far too near. They were the greatest possible eyesore, and they had no right to be in that neighborhood at all. They were little mean dwellings painted a chocolate brown. In the garden patches, there was nothing but cabbage stalks, sick hens, and tomato cans. The very smoke coming out of their chimneys was poverty stricken little rags and shreds of smoke, so unlike the great silvery plumes that uncurled from the Sheridan's chimneys. Washerwomen lived in the lane, and sweeps, and a cobbler, and a man whose house front was studded all over with minute bird cages. Children swarmed. When the Sheridans were little, they were forbidden to set foot there, because of the revolting language and of what they might catch. But since they were grown up, Laura and Laurie, on their prowls, sometimes walked through. It was disgusting and sordid. They came out with a shudder. But still, one must go everywhere. One must see everything. So through they went. And just Think of what the band would sound like to that poor woman, said Laura. Oh, Laura, Josie began to be seriously annoyed. If you're going to stop a band playing every time someone has an accident, you'll lead a very strenuous life. I'm every bit as sorry about it as you. I feel just as sympathetic. Her eyes hardened. She looked at her sister just as she used to when they were little and fighting together. You won't bring a drunken workman back to life by being sentimental, she said softly. Drunk? Who said he was drunk? Laura turned furiously on Josie. She said, just as they had used to say on those occasions, I'm going straight up to tell Mother. Do, dear, cooed Josie. Mother, can I come into your room? Laura turned the big glass doorknob. Of course, child. Why, what's the matter? What's given you such a color? And Mrs. Sheridan turned round from her dressing table. She was trying on a new hat. Mother, a man's been killed, began Laura. Not in the garden, interrupted her mother. No, no. Oh, what a fright you gave me. Mrs. Sheridan sighed with relief and took off the big hat and held it on her knees. But listen, mother said Laura. Breathless, half-choking, she told the dreadful story. Of course, we can't have our party, can we? she pleaded. The band and everybody arriving, they'd hear us, mother. They're nearly neighbors. To Laura's astonishment, her mother behaved just like Josie. It was harder to bear because she seemed amused. She refused to take Laura seriously. But, my dear child, use your common sense— It's only by accident we've heard of it. If someone had died there normally, and I can't understand how they keep alive in those pokey little holes, we should still be having our party, shouldn't we? Laura had to say yes to that, but she felt it was all wrong. She sat down on her mother's sofa and pinched the cushion frill. Mother, isn't it terribly heartless of us? She asked. Darling! Darling! Mrs. Sheridan got up and came over to her, carrying the hat. Before Laura could stop her, she had popped it on. My child, said her mother, the hat is yours. It's made for you. It's much too young for me. I have never seen you look such a picture. Look at yourself. And she held up her hand mirror. But mother, Laura began again. She couldn't look at herself. She turned aside. This time, Mrs. Sheridan lost patience just as Josie had done. "'You are being very absurd, Laura,' she said coldly. "'People like that don't expect sacrifices from us, and it's not very sympathetic to spoil everybody's enjoyment as you're doing now.' "'I don't understand,' said Laura, and she walked quickly out of the room into her own bedroom. There, quite by chance, the first thing she saw was this charming girl in the mirror, in her black hat, Trimmed with gold daisies and a long black velvet ribbon. Never had she imagined she could look like that. Is mother right? she thought, and now she hoped her mother was right. Am I being extravagant? Perhaps it was extravagant. Just for a moment, she had another glimpse of that poor woman and those little children and the body being carried into the house. But it all seemed blurred, unreal like a picture in the newspaper. "'I'll remember it again after the party's over,' she decided, and somehow that seemed quite the best plan. Lunch was over by half-past one. By half-past two, they were all ready for the fray. The green-coated band had arrived and was established in a corner of the tennis court. "'My dear,' trilled Katie Maitland, "'aren't they too like frogs for words?' You ought to have arranged them round the pond, with the conductor in the middle on a leaf. Lori arrived and hailed them on his way to dress. At the sight of him, Laura remembered the accident again. She wanted to tell him. If Lori agreed with the others, then it was bound to be all right. And she followed him into the hall. Lori! Hello! He was halfway upstairs, but when he turned round and saw Laura, he suddenly puffed out his cheeks and goggled his eyes at her. My word, Laura, you do look stunning, said Laura. What an absolutely topping hat. Laura said faintly, is it? And smiled up at Lori and didn't tell him after all. Soon after that, people began coming in streams. The band struck up. The hired waiters ran from the house to the marquee. Wherever you looked, there were couples strolling, bending to the flowers, greeting, moving on over the lawn. They were like bright birds that had alighted in the Sheridan's garden for this one afternoon, on their way to... where? Ah, what happiness it is to be with people who all are happy, to press hands, press cheeks, smile into eyes. Darling Laura, how well you look! What a becoming hat, child! Laura, you look quite Spanish. I've never seen you look so striking. And Laura, glowing, answered softly, Have you had tea? Won't you have an ice? The passion fruit ices really are rather special. She ran to her father and begged him, Daddy, darling, can't the band have something to drink? And the perfect afternoon slowly ripened, slowly faded, slowly its petals closed. Never a more delightful garden party, the greatest success, quite the most. Laura helped her mother with the goodbyes. They stood side by side in the porch till it was all over. All over, all over, thank heaven, said Mrs. Sheridan. Round up the others, Laura. Let's go and have some fresh coffee. I'm exhausted. Yes, it's been very successful, but oh, these parties, these parties. Why will you children insist on giving parties? And they all of them sat down in the deserted marquee. Have a sandwich, Daddy dear. I wrote the flag. Thanks. Mr. Sheridan took a bite, and the sandwich was gone. He took another. I suppose you didn't hear of a beastly accident that happened today he said. My dear, said Mrs. Sheridan, holding up her hand. We did. It nearly ruined the party. Laura insisted we should put it off. Oh, mother. Laura didn't want to be teased about it. It was a horrible affair all the same, said Mr. Sheridan. The chap was married, too, lived just below in the lane, and leaves a wife and half a dozen kiddies, so they say. An awkward little silence fell. Mrs. Sheridan fidgeted with her cup. Really, it was very teckless of father. Suddenly she looked up. There on the table were all those sandwiches. Cakes, puffs, all uneaten. All going to be wasted. She had one of her brilliant ideas. I know! "'she said. "'Let's make up a basket. "'Let's send that poor creature "'some of this perfectly good food. "'At any rate, "'it will be the greatest treat "'for the children. "'Don't you agree?' "'And she's sure to have neighbors calling in and so on. "'What a point to have it "'all ready prepared. "'Laura!' "'she jumped up. "'Get me the big basket "'out of the stairs cupboard.' "'But, mother, "'do you really think "'it's a good idea?' "'said Laura. "'Again, how curious. "'She seemed to be different "'from them all.' To take scraps from their party? Would the poor woman really like that? Of course. What's the matter with you today? An hour or two ago, you were insisting on us being sympathetic, and now— Oh, well. Laura ran for the basket. It was filled. It was heaped by her mother. Take it yourself, darling, said she. Run down, just as you are. No, wait. Take the arum Lilies, too. People of that class are so impressed by arum Lilies— The stems will ruin her lace frock, said Practical Josie. So they would, just in time. Only the basket, then. And Laura, her mother followed her out of the marquee, don't on any account... What, mother? No, better not put such ideas into the child's head. Nothing. Run along. It was just growing dusky as Laura shut their garden gates. A big dog ran by like a shadow. The road gleamed white and down below in the hollow the little cottages were in deep shade how quiet it seemed after the afternoon here she was going down the hill to somewhere where a man lay dead and she couldn't realize it why couldn't she she stopped a minute and it seemed to her that kisses voices tinkling spoons laughter the smell of crushed grass were somehow inside her She had no room for anything else. How strange. She looked up at the pale sky, and all she thought was, yes, it was the most successful party. Now the broad road was crossed. The lane began, smoky and dark. Women in shawls and men's tweed caps hurried by. Men hung over the palings. The children played in the doorways. A low hum came from the mean little cottages. IN SOME OF THEM THERE WAS A FLICKER OF LIGHT, AND A SHADOW, CRAB-LIKE, MOVED ACROSS THE WINDOW. LAURA BENT HER HEAD AND HURRIED ON. SHE WISHED NOW THAT SHE HAD PUT ON A COAT. HOW HER FROCK shone, AND THE BIG HAT WITH THE VELVET STREAMER. IF ONLY IT WAS ANOTHER HAT. WERE THE PEOPLE LOOKING AT HER? THEY MUST BE. IT WAS A MISTAKE TO HAVE COME. SHE KNEW ALL ALONG IT WAS A MISTAKE. Should she go back even now? No, too late. This was the house. It must be. A dark knot of people stood outside. Beside the gate, an old, old woman with a crutch sat in a chair, watching. She had her feet on a newspaper. The voices stopped as Laura drew near. The group parted. It was as though she was expected, as though they had known she was coming here. Laura was terribly nervous. Tossing the velvet ribbon over her shoulder, she said to a woman standing by, Is this Mrs. Scott's house? And the woman, smiling queerly, said, It is, my lass. Oh, to be away from this, she actually said, Help me, God, as she walked up the tiny path and knocked. To be away from those staring eyes, or to be covered up in anything, one of those women's shawls, even. I'll just leave the basket and go, she decided. I shan't even wait for it to be emptied. Then the door opened. A little woman in black showed in the gloom. Laura said, Are you Mrs. Scott? But to her horror, the woman answered, Walk in, please, miss. And she was shut in the passage. No, said Laura. I don't want to come in. I only want to leave this basket. Mother sent. The little woman in the gloomy passage seemed not to have heard her. Step this way, please, miss, she said in an oily voice. And Laura followed her. She found herself in a wretched little low kitchen, lighted by a smoky lamp. There was a woman sitting before the fire. Em, said the little creature who had let her in. Em, it's a young lady. She turned to Laura. She said meaningly, I'm her sister, miss. You'll excuse her, won't you? Oh, but of course, said Laura. Please, please don't disturb her. I I only want to leave. But at that moment, the woman at the fire turned round. Her face puffed up, red, with swollen eyes and swollen lips, looked terrible. She seemed as though she couldn't understand why Laura was there. What did it mean? Why was this stranger standing in the kitchen with a basket? What was it all about? And the poor face puckered up again. All right, my dear, said the other. I'll thank the young lady. And again she began. You'll excuse her, miss, I'm sure. And her face, swollen too, tried an oily smile. Laura only wanted to get out. To get away, she was back in the passage. The door opened. She walked straight through into the bedroom, where the dead man was lying. You'd like a look at him, wouldn't you? said M's sister, and she brushed past Laura over to the bed. Don't be afraid, my lass. And now her voice sounded fond and sly, and fondly she drew down the sheet. He looks a picture. There's nothing to show. Come along, my dear. Laura came. There lay a young man, fast asleep, sleeping so soundly, so deeply, that he was far, far away from them both. Oh, so remote, so peaceful. He was dreaming. Never wake him up again. His head was sunk in the pillow. His eyes were closed. They were blind under the closed eyelids. He was given up to his dream. What did garden parties and baskets and lace frocks matter to him? He was far from all those things. He was wonderful, beautiful. While they were laughing and while the band was playing, this marvel had come to the lane. Happy, happy, all is well said that sleeping face. This is just as it should be. I am content. But all the same, you had to cry, and she couldn't go out of the room without saying something to him. Laura gave a loud, childish sob. Forgive my hat, she said. And this time she didn't wait for M's sister. She found her way out of the door, down the path, past all those dark people. At the corner of the lane she met Laurie. He stepped out of the shadow. Is that you, Laura? Yes. Mother was getting anxious. Was it all right? Yes, quite. Oh, Lori. She took his arm. She pressed up against him. I say, you're not crying, are you? Asked her brother. Laura shook her head. She was. Lori put his arm around her shoulder. Don't cry, he said in his warm, loving voice. Was it awful? No, sobbed Laura. It was simply marvelous. But Lori... She stopped. She looked at her brother. Isn't life, she stammered, isn't life? But what life was, she couldn't explain. No matter, he quite understood. Isn't it, darling, said Laurie. is the garden party. What's our garden party about? What's this story about? It's about class difference, of course. That's pretty obvious from the beginning. You can easily read the story as poor man dies. Rich folks don't care. They get on with their party. They try to help. It goes wrong. But is that a little simple? A little oversimplified? Isn't that how life works? If the rich person died, would the poor person have stopped The poor people, would they have stopped their party? Don't we all continue with our parties in spite of suffering elsewhere in the world all the time? We have to, right? It's the impulse of Laura that makes us think twice. Why does she feel that way about this party? Guilt, proximity, her own relationship with her family, her own relationship with death. That's what takes center stage for her, her relationship with death. That's what makes the rest of the story so vivid. When she gets close to the death, she feels a moment of transcendence. We might expect her to feel something intense in that room, but our expectation would be that it would be fear or anger or futility or disgust. Instead, she feels happy. Let's add some context. This is much like Virginia Woolf, of course. That's another party being planned in Virginia Woolf with a death that haunts it. How do we celebrate anything when there's death nearby? And in 1922, how does one celebrate? How does one think of a family When World War I has just destroyed a generation of young people in such a senseless way, Catherine lost her younger brother, and she herself did not have long to live, and she knew it. And this story is the moment when that knowledge comes to the forefront. What's the first garden party, after all, but the story of the Garden of Eden, where knowledge is the key to everything, knowledge of what the world is really like for humans, It's got love and comforts and parties in it, but it also has sin and suffering and death. For Laura, death is not awful, and gathering to commemorate death is not awful. It's somehow, in some inexpressible way, simply marvelous. And here, her analysis breaks down. She can't explain it. She can't explain why. And yet, her brother understands. Isn't life? Isn't life, she stammers. She's not talking about death. She's talking about life. And he can't articulate it either. This is where the genius of the author steps in, ironically, in knowing how to step back, how to get out of the way. There's no need to over-explain this moment or this mood. It's beyond words. It's beyond reason. It's a feeling. And Laura feels it, and so too does the brother, and so do we. And the brother simply responds with a question of his own. Isn't it? she begins and he says isn't it darling this the isn't in his question is italicized isn't it darling he knows he knows what she means and he calls her darling we're all little humans on this big planet we're nothing and we came from nothing and we're headed to nothingness but we can feel that joy of the marvelous which might mean contemplating death because that's part of the experience too. And yet, even we puny humans on this giant planet that spins and spins and spins, we can connect with one another while we're here. We can sit in our garden in Israel and send pictures of birds to our podcasting friend in America just a few weeks before our 95th birthday. Our podcasting friend smiles and turns to the next email, which is from his teenage friend in New Zealand. All three of them are united in this brief moment, crossing the world, crossing time, finding one another in this brief but powerful connection. We can connect. We can't find words for it, not always, but we can feel the majesty and marvel of life, and we can share that understanding, and we can call each other darling. That's being human. It's not a godlike power. It's not omniscience, and it can't solve every problem in the world. But sometimes it's as good as we can do. Hmm. That's gonna do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to our friends Blanche in Jerusalem. Please stay safe and happy birthday, and to M in New Zealand, stay safe there as well. My thanks also to Catherine Mansfield, of course. What a wonderful writing career she had, and how tragic she was struck down so young. That blasted tuberculosis. Took so many writers. It's incredible. We never got a novel from Ms. Mansfield, although her short stories are so good, maybe that was her perfect form. Anyway, we can't spend too much time lamenting the works that weren't written. We will subtract time that we could otherwise spend on exploring the works that were. Speaking of which, we will be here again to do just that next time. I think we are finally, finally going to get to a long awaited episode. I'm just going to stop right there in case it doesn't happen. No. (laughs) And to make sure you tune in to see who it is that's coming up. (laughs) It's coming up soon. Uh, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.